This is Nemesis State Hoka for NEGM Catholic. I'm speaking today with Dr. Jamie Stoller, the chair of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Jean Wall Bennett Professorship in Emphysema Research at the Cleveland Clinic Learners College of Medicine. He has held major leadership roles at the institution, as well as has extensively researched, written, and trained physician leaders. We will be discussing the role of leadership in healthcare delivery, specifically the unique contributions and challenges of physician leaders. Let's start, Katie, with the premise that leadership is important in all industries, not just healthcare, and that it has always been important, not just in today's environment. What is unique about the current healthcare environment that makes excellent leadership so important in healthcare today? Well, Namada, I'm delighted to, to join you, and, and uh, thank you for the question and opportunity. I, I think that healthcare faces some unique challenges of, uh, of all sectors. We, of course, have the universal challenge of providing quality care, providing access to care, and doing so at an affordable cost, the, the so-called triple aim of the IHI. We add to that uh, what some would call the quadruple aim, the, the need to make sure the caregivers are engaged, uh, have minimal stress, and, and, and avoid burnout. And I think when one puts those four features together of the quadruple aim, the challenge requires uh, significant and effective leadership competencies at the helm of healthcare organizations. Uh, so I think that's the, the perfect storm, if you will, uh, that creates the need for leadership. Would you say there's a there's a component uh, of the pace of change that's that's also happening, which is that we obviously need to realize these these four main objectives. But in in your experience, and and you've led at at the Cleveland Clinic and in major leadership and administrative roles and in the past, and and obviously now currently. What is your experience with the, with the pace of, of, of change and transformation that's required? Is it, is it more or less different? Oh, I think the pace is clearly accelerated. This has been abetted by technology. Um, the EMR, of course, has facilitated uh, more rapid, if you will, transactions with our patients, such that patients now, of course, can review their medical records and email us in real time. And so the whole expectation uh, from a lens of patient experience has also required uh, increased responsiveness, just as in the rest of our lives in general. So I think the pace has clearly increased, and this has, of course, contributed to the leadership challenge. I think that it's required some very specific competencies about, about being nimble, uh, about uh, understanding change, how to orchestrate change. Uh, there are defined models. Uh, this is the work of John Cotter and others. Many have commented on the discipline of change, and I think that effective leaders need, need to understand this vocabulary and actually embrace the behaviors that are associated with with change management. Uh, I think that we're in a, a, a volatile, uncertain, ambiguous world, what some have called VUCA, uh, and that's not going away. It will only accelerate. So all of the forces that you've mentioned, I think, up the ante, if you will, for for leaders in healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I am not familiar, Jamie, with this term VUCA. What is that? 
Well, it largely comes out of the, the military training, uh, uh, the, the notion that things are volatile, uncertain, confusing, and ambiguous, uh, the, the acronym VUCA. Uh, and, and this really, uh, among leadership circles, is a driving force. It's a recognition that we need to be prepared for uncertainty and embrace it rather than resist it uh, because it is an ineluctable force. Uh, and it basically defines the pace of change that we've been discussing. Things are volatile in terms of all of the challenges of quality, access, cost. Things are changing all the time. So, so many have termed this under the broad umbrella of the, the VUCA term. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would layer on there that, that our political environment and, and what is going on in, in Washington helps support the uncertain, confusing, and sometimes ambiguous uh, parts of, 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 those, of those terms uh, those terms as well. Absolutely. Independ- <laughs> independent of, of, of those ongoings and, and bringing it back to, to the competencies that, 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 that you mentioned, uh, what are the core competencies of a physician leader, and which of these are distinct from the core competencies of a leader without a medical degree? Are, are there significant differences? Yeah, I think that physician leaders straddle two worlds. Uh, the, the first world is, of course, of clinical medicine with, with deep passion and commitment to to patient care. Uh, we spend most of our early lives, actually not so early, <laughs> uh, <laughs> learning the practice of clinical medicine and the rest of our lives refining it. Uh, and yet, um, uh, I and many others would argue that, that leadership competencies are a, a specific discipline and differ profoundly from the clinical competencies that we spend so much of our lives trying to master. And so we have this, this funny paradox, if you will, that it takes so much time and energy to master our clinical and scientific and academic, for those of us who are academic lives, there are specific skills and, and, and competencies that are cultivated and developed uh, in our traditional medical training, and yet the, that attention leaves, leaves little bandwidth, if you will, for learning leadership competencies. Furthermore, it's been argued, and I have argued, that the hidden curriculum, the curriculum that we see in front of us about how doctors are selected to be doctors, how they're trained as doctors, in a funny way, conspires against some of the leadership competencies that we seek and that are so important in healthcare. We know, for example, there's a robust literature that supports the value of teamwork in healthcare. Uh, the notion that in the ICU, in diagnosing um, imaging, in the laboratory, that collaboration translates into better clinical outcomes. Uh, there's, a, again, a robust body of literature that defends that notion. And yet, if we look at the traditional criteria by which physicians are selected and trained, it often conspires against the, these, if you will, collaborative reflexes, what Tom Lee, my dear friend, um, and uh, fellow intern uh, uh, framed in a Harvard Business Review paper, heroic loan healers. We train heroic loan healers, at least in a traditional concept. But fortunately, it's changing. So what are those four factors as I think about them? The factors that cause physician to be, if you will, collaboratively challenged. 
One is that the training certainly favors individual performance. Uh, each one of us as a doctor got into medical school on the strength of a strong academic record, uh, succeeded in medical school again on the strength of a strong academic record, found our way into uh, hopefully fabulous residencies, again on the strength of individual performance, recertifies and certifies uh, with boards in a highly individual performance. So this cultivates deep-seated reflexes for individual performance. The, the second is training is long and hierarchical. Uh, and while that, that is changing, uh, I think there is still a, a component in which uh, there's a certain subservience that attaches to being a junior physician and emerging through complex systems. And that develops a certain reflex on arrival after finishing training for the notion that you're the kind of the king of the hill and can sometimes behave that way. The third is what I've called extrapolated authority. And let me give you an example and, and, and own it myself. So I'm a pulmonary critical care doctor. When I see patients in clinic who are short of breath, they confer to me the authority that, frankly, I deserve in that context. I've spent most of my life thinking about the etiology of dyspnea and how to make people who are short of breath feel better. The problem is when I leave clinic and I go out to a restaurant with my wife and there's a line, I'm likely to say subliminally to myself, stand on line, I'm an expert in dyspnea. <laughs> and, of course, we, we extrapolate our authority to context in which we may not actually have authority. And, and the fourth factor that makes us collaboratively challenged and, and which needs to be addressed in curriculum uh, and is being addressed is what I've called uh, as physicians are deficit-based thinkers. If you think about it, the process of learning clinical medicine and generating a differential diagnosis is all about assembling a list of candidate causes in service of navigating that cause in service of the patient's betterment. And the more seasoned you are as a clinician, the more nimble you are about generating a differential and, and finding the root cause of the patient's problem, ideally one that has a treatment. And so this way of clinical reasoning in which we're constantly looking for problems frames our brains in a way that actually is antithetical to what most organizational thinkers would have us believe to be effective for organizational life, namely the antidote to deficit-based thinking is what some would call appreciative inquiry. This is the work of David Cooperider and others at the Weatherhead School. And appreciative inquiry frames the question through, uh, through a much more, if you will, appreciative lens. What are we when we're at our best? It seeks, it seeks positivity rather than deficit. And if the notion is that words create worlds, when we frame questions from an organizational point of view through an appreciative lens, we get a very different set of answers than we do through a deficit-based lens. So the point I'm making is that there are these deep reflexes that each of us as doctors has that, that frame a certain perspective. And the leadership transition is recognizing that those competencies work very well for clinical practice, but may actually conspire against our leadership competencies. And so what I, and I'm sure you and other medical leaders do, is they take time out. When I leave clinic and I go to some executive function at the Cleveland Clinic or in other contexts, I, I literally huddle with myself and say, Jamie, I'm leaving clinic. I need to suspend a certain way that my brain works in a clinical context and adopt a different set of operating principles from, from my leadership role. And that part of mindfulness, that mindfulness and awareness of context, is one of the essential leadership competencies. It, it falls under the broader rubric of self-awareness that, that many call emotional intelligence, which 
in, in my view and in many of my colleagues' view here at the Cleveland Clinic and elsewhere, believe is actually the essential leadership competency for doctors and for leaders in other contexts. That is fascinating because what you're suggesting, and, and I agree with you, is that there is actually a different set of skills required to be successful in these two contexts. And the sequela of that then is it's incredibly exhausting because you literally have to become a different type of person when you're in clinic, a different approach versus when they walk into to an executive boardroom. So is the solution to that that we should be changing the way that we approach clinical practice? These, these four components of the emphasis on individual performance, this hierarchical that leads into a king of the hill mentality later on, and so on and so forth. Does, does that warrant changing, or do we, and perhaps we do both, it, uh, either and in parallel, focus on giving physician leaders the, the capabilities to do this transition? It's a great question, and, and, and I love the quote, and I'll, of course I'll botch it, but it comes from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, essentially, the sign of an intelligent mind is the ability to hold two conflicting realities and still function. <laughs> and, and, and I think that is the challenge of physician leadership. So on the one hand, there are many dimensions of how we're trained that are time-honored and highly effective. So the notion of of differential diagnosis and being deficit-based in the clinical work. And, and there's no reason to suspect that, that we should fundamentally alter some of those things. At the same time, uh, I think the recognition that we need to be nimble and mindful and be able to, to pivot, if you will, between our clinical context and our organizational context is also important. Uh, uh, and again, that's where mindfulness becomes such an important leadership competency. It's situational awareness. I will say that, however, that, that there are some dimensions of leadership competencies that do overflow into the clinical arena. I'll give you a concrete example. So I was largely unaware of most of the things I'm saying to you until about 15 years ago I went offline and, and got some uh, graduate degree in organizational development. And why, is that, why does that matter to me? Um, it mattered to me because it changed a little bit of a lens about how I engage with my colleagues and my organization. And as a concrete example, before that, uh, when I would pick up a service, I would show up on the ward or the ICU. And, of course, there were the fellows and the residents and the medical students and so on. Uh, and everyone kind of go into role and, and off we go, presenting cases and making rounds. Uh, uh, I think in the aftermath of this training and just a general uh, enhanced awareness. I pick up a team in a very different way now. For example, we have a, a Starbucks at the Cleveland Clinic, and on the first day of service, I'll show up on the ward. Uh, of course, all the fellows and residents and medical students are ready to present, and I'll ask them to put their their cards or increasingly their, their mobile devices away. We go down and have a cup of coffee for about 45 minutes, and I will systematically ask every member of the team about what their expectations, if this were a fabulous experience on service with me, the success would be on their wildest dreams, what would happen? And so I, I begin to, to game frame, if you will, the experience. Uh, and that also provides me an opportunity to say, if this were fabulous, what would happen? So I can then engage with them in an open dialogue about expectations, feedback, 
uh, their expectations of me, my expectations of them, anchoring principles on the North Star of, of making sure that this is a fabulous experience for our patients, most importantly, and then obviously a fabulous experience for them, where we're providing first-rate care in, in a caring and supportive environment. So that small example of how one approaches a, a very hierarchical structure starts to change what I call the hidden curriculum. It starts to show behaviors to junior physicians and, and medical students, behaviors from senior physicians that acknowledge the need to change some of the traditional, if you will, hierarchical reinforcers. And so part of the change in the way we train doctors has to do with changing the, the hidden curriculum by making explicit and mindful some of the, some of the differences that people experience about being in healthcare. I completely agree with you. It's, it's that modeling of behavior. It is a apprentice-based model, the way we train and, and learn to be physicians. And so what, what I really like about your example is two things. One is that you are modeling behavior because all those people that, that are on service with you in five years when they are attending will pick up that same behavior because it was such a positive experience for them. And we all keep a little running list, I know I did, of, you know, of, of behaviors that I appreciated from my attending that then I have now incorporated into, into my practice and, and dealing with, with health staff. And the second thing that your practice does is it, it within 45 minutes, creates team. And as we all know, when teams are functioning as teams, uh, particularly in a critical care environment, they they perform better. And my own example is as as an internist at the Brigham, when when I'm on service, we spend the first two minutes of um, of, of service where my team goes around and they introduce each other themselves to me uh, and and to each other. And oftentimes we find that they have may have been on service taking care of critically ill patients for weeks. And, and not known the basic thing about the person that they're working with, like where they're from and one thing that they like to do when they're not in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so that seemingly minor intervention has had a huge implication in terms of reminding us that we are working with other people in the greater good of, of taking care of our patients. 